Hi, Internet. My name is Jonathan Matos. And this is Melissa Matos. I need to start saying John Matos because that's my pen name. Yes. <laughs> I just want to have on my book. My book is Cain and Abel. You can get it now on Amazon. You should totally get it. As, on audiobook or print or, yeah. phys, or dig, digital. Digital. Um, I write sad and gritty stories, um, some of which are inspired by uh, stories, ad- adaptations of stories of scripture like Cain and Abel, the one that's out now. C A N E. It's Ken and Abel meets Breaking Bad. A B L E. Yes, that's actually might be better than Vault in Our Stars meets Breaking Bad, but I've been trying to sell. Yeah. It hasn't hasn't necessarily come across. So there are either people that hate Breaking Bad or people that hate the Vault in Our Stars <laughs> and like the other. And they're one. like, why did you put these I'm, together? I'm, I'm alienating. Alien- got peanut butter in my chocolate. <laughs> um, so uh, today we're we're rounding up uh, a really good Inklings month. Yes. On. Uh, the essay by Jared Tolkien on fairy stories, um, and there are some of some of the points that I think will make might be bleed throughs from watching the movie on him. If you want to watch that episode, um, we saw the biopic that they did recently, um, and uh, our our opening discussion on Jared Tolkien in general. Um, <clears throat> but uh, on fairy stories really surprised me as. How I, I use this term in the C.S. Lewis episode of how punk rock it is, <laughs> and it seems like they're they're talking to a bunch of stuffy professors about well, they, their points. They did and work are at like, Oxford, right? And they're but it's like they're cowering as to like, I hope I'm not ruffling anybody's feathers out there, but this is what I feel, um, because at this time it seems like he's making a point of fairy stories have been reduced to either fables. Or kind of obscure uh, cultural tableaus. Um, and so that was kind of interesting to me that he would see that as a reduction of, of um, fairy and, and, and uh, fairy tales. And that, it, like you were saying, him being this father of fantasy. Growing up, I saw fantasy as this is the product. This is the comic I've ma- I, I have. This is the property that's being made into this big blockbuster film. And it seemed very commodified to me and very anesthetized by that procedure. Uh, but I'm interested to get your thoughts on in its, in its opening gambit. Like what spoke to you about that, those points he was making? Um, so I, I do agree that, you know, thinking of fantasy as it is now, because it is as huge as it is currently, uh, uh. and, you know, has become a whole genre of fiction and has become something that people want to see on television shows and whatever. Um, it is hard not to think of it as such a commercialized thing. Um, but obviously at the time Tolkien was writing, it was very much either... Uh, like you said, fables or children's stories, right? Mm. Like these are moralistic things we're teaching you with as opposed to the big blockbuster things we see now. Mm -hmm. Um, I like that he goes through, this is all that fairy stories are not (laughs) at the beginning, right? Right. This is what magic is not. This is not what I'm talking about. And he says, you know, it's not uh, children's stories. It's not just magic in the sense of, like a stage magician magic. Like Mm. we're not talking about somebody who's trying to trick you, Mm. right? This is magic in the sense of something supernatural, right? Something Mm. outside of what we as human beings can just do. Right. Yeah. That's, that's what I have down is that our, 
fairy stories about are about a state of enchantment. Right. And so the the reference that he makes is to a poem of like women being enchanted. It right. Was a, a, lo- a lover writing about his his lover, and this this being more of like the point of fairy tales in his opinion were getting across this primordial wanting. So I wrote down a quote, uh, the magic of fairy is not an end in itself. Its virtue is in its operations. Among these are the satisfaction of certain primordial human desires. One of these desires is to survey the depths of space and time. Another is, as will be seen, to hold communion with other living things. A story may thus deal with satisfaction of these desires, whether without the operation of either machine or magic, and in proportion as it succeeds, it will appro- approach the quality and have the flavor of fairy story. So it's it's an interesting argument to go to these primordial desires and not necessarily see them as uh, a secularization of um, like old religious things right. or necessarily see them as just an ends to a certain specific desire, but as like fairy tales to him hold the like the um, the totality of human desire. It's, right. a, it's a vessel for uh, a lot of um, a lot and of I, things. I think the key there's a couple keywords that I'm going to bring up, but the keyword through the first part is imagination. Mm-hmm. Like he goes through several things that he will eventually capitalize, you know, capitalize the first letter. This is a big idea. Boom. And imagination, I think, is the first one because mm-hmm. he points out that what you do in a fantasy is you are taking things that a human mind can imagine. Right. So you can picture a green sun, even though we have never seen a green sun and it makes no sense for the sun here to be green. Mm-hmm. You can do that kind of things. He's calling this mythological grammar, mythical grammar, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which is what you see in a lot of myths, any of those kinds of stories, right? You see myths or fables or whatever. Let's imagine a fox that can talk. Let's picture a horse that can fly. Let's, you know, it's all this crazy stuff that just kind of mishing together. Mm -hmm. But what you do in a true fantasy story, as he is terming it, where you're building a whole secondary world, as he also comes, I don't know if he's the first one that coined that term or not. I forgot to look that up, uh-huh. but that's definitely a huge term in fantasy now is yeah. to have a secondary Yeah, if it's not something he came up with, it, it very much... Probably the first one that, like, where it, <laughs> where we realized it meant a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, where you are creating a world where it does make sense for the sun to be green. Mm-hmm. Um, where it does make sense for a horse to fly, mm-hmm. right? You were not just saying, oh, the horses fly here. Which, like, in a fable, that's all you're saying. The foxes talk. Mm-hmm. There's no reason why... There's no history to that. It's just, we're going to have a fox and a crow talking because I'm trying to teach you something. And this is a good way to illustrate my point. As opposed to, no, the sun is green and the sun is green because this planet is tilted such and such a degree and the atmosphere is like this. And hence the sun looks green to the people. And like, mm. like you come up with reasons. For so yeah. So a good, that. a good analogy for that and, and what um, might help people who uh, have been taught that uh, like, something like literary fiction or you know great non-fiction like say that um uh, Joyce wrote um uh that those are specifically literary if you think of something like in the green the great gatsby the green light is a very almost magically surreal picture right. but it's definitely symbolic of something yeah and so that fantasy is taking that a step further and using embedding symbols in many different things and not necessarily making them allegorical as you would think of in 
what C.S. Lewis was doing, where he was taking specific mythic and Christian symbols and blending them to try to make both of them kind of stronger. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I, I also had say, said that, uh, or wrote, uh, Tolkien protests to the subconscious of man in dreams being the primary purpose of a fairy tale, seeing it as an accusation of trickery and fantasy, like you said, um, and meaning is more than pattern recognition, uh, he says, but even with regard to language, it seems to me that the essential quality and aptitudes of a given language in a living monument is both more important to seize and far more difficult to make explicit, explicit than its linear history. So it's kind of this uh, transfiguration of different patterns of language into meaning. It's trying to embed these things as um, more than just the sum of their parts. Like right. the words are there to invoke some kind of deeper meaning. And at this time he was saying, we've kind of reduced fairy tales to something that only means something for kids or only means something as this fable that has a direct right. corollary meaning. Um, he was trying to broaden it. And it's interesting to me because like I said, I associate broadening with like, if you hear in Hollywood or among film critics, something being broad is usually an insult mm -hmm. to say this is broad comedy um, or, or this is, you know, unlike a, a Kubrick film or something like this is, you know, trying to make this, you know, non-artistic. Um, but Jared Tolkien's trying to say that creating your own meaning for these very old symbols is actually breathing new life into them. Right. He's trying, and that was what he tried to do with Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, I, I, was, I have so much I want to try to say. It all, it all clogged up in my head <laughs> at the same time. Um, Happens to the, the best of us. <laughs> so I like I like that you brought up the point of broadening it. Um, and I and I don't understand why people think that's an insult. You would think you would want to reach as many people as you could with your story mm. instead of just saying, no, you have to be this intelligent to understand what I'm saying and the rest of you. And, and to be fair, even in some fantasy stories, if you don't know anything about the mythology that they're pulling from or if you don't know anything about the history of where they are, you might not get a lot of references. Because there's a lot of references in Tolkien that if you have not read stuff like the Ring Saga from Germany or mm. know anything about Norse mythology, you're not going to pick up on but the way he wrote it and the way he presented, no, I'm going to put this in a whole new world for you to understand. You can just read it as it is and get a lot out of it still mm. without having to know all of that extra stuff. Mm. Right. Same thing even with C.S. Lewis, even though the Chronicles of Narnia is a much more directly, you can draw a lot of directly allegorical stuff from it. Mm. There's been a lot of people from a lot of other religions that have enjoyed that. And it has meant a lot to them mm. in their own religion, mm. as opposed to just in Christianity. Mm. And it still, you know, touches them, too. Mm. Personally, I have different opinions about that. I don't necessarily think it was an allegory. I think it's a lot more... What would you call it? I'm going to start calling it speculative fiction because I think that's the more broad term well, for it. I think the, I think the sociological term would be syn syncretic, right. almost. Because to him, it's not, oh, I'm going to write an allegory where Jesus is a lion. Mm. It's... What if there were parallel universes and we assume that the Christian God is the truth? Okay, so how does he show up in a world where all the intelligent beings are animals? He's mm -hmm. not going to show up as a human being. Right. He's going to show up as their king of the beasts. And right. so that's what he has. So it's more of a big what if story than a direct like. Right. 
you know, it's just to him, this is the truth. So this is how I'm putting this into these stories because mm-hmm. that is what I believe is and so real. I think, I think as a comic book reader, there are things about fantasy and sci-fi that have been commodified into direct allegories like right. Captain America. <laughs> yeah. Guess what he's doing? Guess what he does? He goes and punches <laughs> Nazis because that's what America does. Right. And so like... At least it did at the time. That being what my generation has been grown up on as the popular mythology, I think that colored my uh, my thinking subconsciously about what fantasy and sci-fi can do, what they can be. And Jared Tolkien's kind of making this point that the, the inclination that some authors have to take these symbols and make them you know, either direct allegories or something that, like, with comics is something that a certain age group reads. I think you can make that same criticism for YA. The inclination for a lot of the publishing industry to embed fantasy as a specific age group should read this stuff Right, kind of reduces the genre to that plateau Mm -hmm. and jared tolkien is a lot less you know he has a lot like less of an extra grinding than i do but that he's defining that like this is the plateau that our thinking is on what can we project this further to be right for people that are reading right so that brings us then to the second big term that he uses which is subcreation right he goes into the this primal desire that humans have for this secondary imaginative world Mm -hmm. is because in his opinion and our opinion though not everybody's opinion obviously that we were made by a creator that likes to create things Mm -hmm. and we were made in his image so we also like to create things Mm -hmm. like it's just part of it whatever reasoning you have behind why you believe that's part of the human psyche you cannot deny that it's part of the human psyche Mm -hmm. to like to make things even goes into that with somewhat with the uh archbishop slipping on a banana and what that actually brought to my mind was the the famous like Facebook fable basically of the professor saying that there's no God in the chalk. And it's interesting because for a believer hearing that, so for those of you who don't know it, you've probably seen it, but um, there's this, this professor who says every day, you know, God is, I don't know if he says God is dead, but he says something to that effect. And it, oh you know, if God was real, he'd be able to, move this chalk and there's something where he like kind of slips and drops something. There's a very similar reference in here where it's talking about an archbishop slipping on a banana peel or something. And so what he's basically saying is that the soup of fantasy sometimes includes authority figures like that, like a professor or like an archbishop. And it's not necessarily like you would say in that poem, if you're making a straw man out of an atheist, he can be like a professor doing this stuff. But for a believer hearing that story, it's more about deli- more about embedding the power of God into a fable right. that is not entirely 100% quote unquote true. Right. But it's 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 means more than just an attack on a an atheist, much like weird fables about kings and queens in the past were passed down and down to more indicate the what the meaning of power is. Right. Because the next generation, like it or not. That. <laughs> yeah, and, and the king is going to die eventually. So the next generation needs to know what it's like, you know, what power means so that right. they don't 
you know, ruin the country as it, as it go, goes on. And I, I see it more as instead of, cause it's kind of inverted. People look at it and say, Oh, well this obviously symbolizes this politician. He's just afraid to say anything outright about it. So he's mm. going to use, no, what you're doing in fantasy is you're like, you remember, you know, 500 years ago where we had this same problem uh, and 200 years ago where we had the same problem right. and this is the same thing again and uh, this repeats itself 500 years and like yeah. it is this big large overarching scope of this is human experience mm. and yeah right now it looks like this but in this other world it would look like this but it's just always the same <laughs> because right. it's all humanity yeah in all of the same places right which is actually a funny thing he says about science fiction in, in the no, towards the end. Mm-hmm. He considered science fiction even a step past fantasy mm-hmm. as far as uh, escapism went, right? Because you know, a lot of what they were accusing of fantasy people mm-hmm. is that, you know, you're just reading this to escape the real world. Uh-huh. And he's like, yeah, well, if you want to talk about escaping the real world, let's talk about science fiction for a minute. <laughs> this is literally people getting on spaceships and going to some other planet to get away from this world, right? So it's like literal stories about escaping humanity or escaping right. death or escaping this yeah. planet. And it's the same crap on the planet they go to that they left, right? Even in the stories that they are trying to make up about some other place, it is still the same problems. Yeah, we're finding that with watching The Twilight Zone again. Right. Jordan Peele's very intelligently, and I said self-awarely because a lot of the main characters seem to be struggling with an enormous sense of their authority and struggling with it. And it, I, it seemed like that was a analogy you could make to Jordan Peele. Why is he coming up with these stories? Because people project on him this intelligence of he can deal with race and nobody else can. Right. <laughs> but at the same time, his the efficacy of his handle over what sci-fi can do means that it's not just about him. Right. He really is able to somehow show from adapting the original Twilight Zone episodes that people remember rather than J.J. Abrams singing it and just adding lens flares to it. Like, <laughs> he's he's able to, like, show that there's things within those stories that are still true today. Yeah, that are universal, that are stuff that we all understand mm. and that scare all of us. Right. And, and it's the same thing with fantasy. You're taking this this, you know, even though you're in some other place, even though you're in some strange world that you made up Mm -hmm. the foibles and flaws and hopes and dreams of humanity are all still part of it. Mm -hmm. They're just um, exaggerated to be more obvious Mm -hmm. and to, you know, like let's play around with these concepts and Mm -hmm. see and look at them. The other nice thing, sorry, I'll keep, I'm kind of, no, that's fine. My notes are done. Meandering. (laughs) Um, The other thing he talks about is how fantasy lets you look at um, stuff that you are used to. Right, stuff mm. that is no longer magical to you, right? Mm. Because at one point, all things were magical, right? Like the light bulb was like the coolest thing ever at uh. one point, and then we promptly forgot how cool they were, and we just have them everywhere because they're <laughs> just, you know. Yeah. So. So comedians, that, to to interrupt for a second, comedians actually do that a lot with their premises. An observational comedian is trying to remind the audience something that they know that is commonplace, but kind of like a joke is somewhat magical in that same way. Um, yeah. because there was a comedian that was talking about the, the somebody getting angry that they couldn't connect to Wi-Fi in an airplane, and just like until a minute ago, I didn't even realize I didn't that even was know you could do that a thing, <laughs> and he's already like pissed off at it. So anyway, 
Exactly. Yeah. So fantasy has the ability to take mundane, boring, usual things mm. and turn them into stuff and look at them in, in different ways mm. to make them magical to you again. Mm. Right. Um, which I thought was a nifty point to bring up. Mm-hmm. Um, my other, my other little funny twinge when he's talking about secondary worlds and how to represent fantasy and why you should represent fantasy as novels mm. as opposed to other forms, he goes off on drama, right? He's like, why oh. you should not try and do fantasy in the theater. <laughs> oh, right, <laughs> Because right. at the time, it looked ridiculous, yeah. right? It's like you either have like some guy with puppets on stage or you have like some kind of trick of the lights that you're trying to fake this stuff happening on, on stage. Right. And I'm like, isn't this so sad that Tolkien never got to see CGI? Because I'm pretty sure he'd have been psyched out of his mind uh. to see the Balrog that was in Lord of the Rings or the way they did smog in mm. like, a, there's not tons I love about the Hobbit, but they got that scene right. Mm-hmm. Him and the scene between the Hobbit and smog mm. well, th- th- in that cave I think was to amazing. Your point- I think to to not necessarily argue your point, but but give some perspective on that. I feel like that argument came up when the Aladdin trailer came out, right? And so a lot of people were they were focusing on the fact that there had been another Aladdin that is in the collective unconscious of many people that were around in the nineties. And so the fact that it's not Robin Williams, the fact that the CGI looks a little wonky it immediately takes you out of that. Right. So I, I agree that the ability yeah, you, you to, have to get it right. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying right. you can put any love. Right. But that's what I'm saying. It's not, I'm not arguing that, that he would probably be psyched to see better interpretations of that thing. But I think another part of his argument is adaptation into a visual medium. Isn't the same as the written word where you get to yeah, imagine it's all in your mind. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it better taps into those, instincts within you of like oh this is what i see when i read this and then you you know more readily have conversations about it and it there's a different type of imaginative quality to a a a short story or book um yeah i mean i was even watching the the never-ending story i found the never-ending story on on our streaming thing last Mm. night and had to watch it because Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it forever. But that and the, the the other argument I want to make is that there are a lot of people cynically just saying that there is no value to that, and that I, I wouldn't go that far because there is a reason why, even even if it's it this guaranteed box office thing, there is that's kind of my argument with Rudyard Kipling is that any instance of uh you know cultural culture vulturing or uh, recalling some legend that that goes to my point about the archbishop and the, and the thing is that there are some things that are embedded within the collective unconscious and you can't just say that because a company made a captain america doll that 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 that, that, that means that america means nothing yeah <laughs> like there are certain things that are powerful within our thinking and that we can retell as stories and we imbue meaning into them right. for a reason. Right. So, yeah. Um, I'm hoping someday to start taking notes now to go off on whole long rants about not rants. That's the wrong word, but I want to expound upon superheroes and how they are modern American mythology mm. and the importance thereof, because mm. I do think it is a thing. Mm. Um, but anyway, uh, moving on. 
Yes. So I, I like too now and then he'll kind of slip into talking about art is made by the elves. Mm. <laughs> Even though there are no elves and it's not like he thinks there are. Mm. He's just talking about like, so this is how men make art, right? And then you extend art into imagination and it becomes fantasy and this mm. is our thing. When elves make art, because they are obviously better at this than us, because apparently they're better at us than everything and everything. Um, their art becomes enchantment. So it's not just that they can, you know, imagine secondary worlds like we do. They yeah. can bring them into being and stick you in them, mm. right? And enchant you into thinking you're actually there. Right. And I'm like, okay, so what is this Disney World now? Like, what? <laughs> but no, seriously, like it's just this fun. Like he will occasionally slip into be like, oh yeah, and if the elves did this, then. And I'm sure elves write stories about escaping from deathlessness, which is what they have, as opposed to men writing escaping from death. Mm. Funny stuff. Anyway, last big word that he uses in the essay um, is eucatastrophe, which we have talked some about before, oh. because we have been talking about Tolkien most of the month. Um, the idea of this fairy story not just being, you know, some big crazy epic thing that happens in your head. There has to be this turn right? This mm. giving of grace in the middle of the story where you think everything is going crazy and we are at the last point and that the hero is about to, to lose it. Mm. And then there is the turn and mm. uh, something good comes out at the end. Yeah. So, I did, I did some research into Shakespeare at one time about the, uh, I think the Tempest was what I was researching, but anyway, um, I think during the medieval times, the, or his, his times, um, Elizabethan times, the turn miracle became associated with drama because he would normally have like, and then Jupiter comes. Yeah, well, and the, does the whole day is just mocking up. Um, so it's interesting that he argues um, against drama, and I think that's more to what I was saying is that it's not necessarily the 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 stories that are retold in dramatic form, but those certain limits of yeah. Being Make able sure to replicate what a miracle should actually feel like. And that that's to your point about the elves is that like that being they're replicating power is stronger than ours. <laughs> and so like that there's something enchanted about it that he wants to, you know, preserve. All right. I think I'm, I'm, I'm good. All right. That's a lot to digest, but it's yeah. an awesome essay. She, she's, she's, this is like a boxing match. <laughs> This is going to be our chance to cool down before the second round. Round two. Ding, ding, ding. We need a ding, ding, ding. Sound. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We'll see you after the mid-roll. There we go. Welcome back to the Unboxing Story Podcast. Um, this is a special video. <laughs> We're going to do as a video and um, as the second half of our Unboxing Story episode on on fairy stories. There's a lot of double negatives, <laughs> but um, we're we we're talking about how Tolkien frames fantasy, and it's and to me it came across as an, a defense of fantasy and yes. part of his treatise to kind of invent fantasy. Um, but uh, my my sister has a, a bone to pick. Yeah, yo, Adrian. First of all, no, that could be that kind of a video, <laughs> but. Um, I, my brother has turned me on to Stripped Cover Lit, and the hosts of Stripped Cover Lit are Adrian and Dalton, and Adrian apparently has no interest in fantasy stories. Um, they were reading Lord of the Rings, 
and he only, as far as I know, read the first book. I haven't really gone digging through the videos to see if he's mm -hmm. read more. But but I've watched a lot of his Harry Potter videos. Oh, that's right. That's and the so other big one that he's done. I, that's what's fresh in my mind. So I might interject every now and again, if if criticism that I've had of those videos comes across in in your critique of of, um, of his Lord of the Rings. And, and um, and to be fair, this isn't going to be like a, this know. isn't our way of starting a YouTube beef. No, it's um, not that kind of thing. But, uh, he scares me a little bit. <laughs> but, but in the, in the spirit of Sherpa Roulette and making a, a bunch of tags and in trying to start conversations about different texts, um, this is our way of throwing our hat into the ring. Yes. Uh, being a part of BookTube. We've only done one or two videos that might fall into that category yeah. so far. <laughs> We so, do too many different things. <laughs> but uh, I'm excited to see what you think of Lord of the Rings okay. and how you throw <laughs> throw my hat into I'm trying to my think two of cents in. Rocky Balboa. Rocky. <laughs> so that's the other thing is that we're from Philadelphia. Yeah. And so we're we're. Um, so I just had to say, you'll because how many how many nature. chances do you get to say that in context and it actually makes sense? <laughs> I mean, really. Anyway, so um, the first thing I wanted to bring up about Lord of the Rings is um i know they were commenting both of them actually were commenting a lot how it reads like the old testament uh-huh and uh tolkien's stated intention with writing lord of the rings was to give britain back its own mythology a lot of the native mythology of the british isles got mowed over by the many many cultures that <laughs> invaded the place over the centuries and so they didn't really have their own native mythology anymore Right, a lot of it had been taken over by Norse stuff when the Vikings invaded, or by the Normans when the French invaded, and, and all these different cultures. Um, so he was kind of digging down into as much as he could the native British Isles mythology and rebuilding that up. So it does kind of read a lot like the Old Testament, especially when you get into parts other writings that he's done, like the Silmarillion, um, because he is literally built rebuilding an entire mythology, not just this novel that you're reading. And to to interject, I think that was a criticism, sometimes in his their videos on Harry Potter, is that um, Adrian I think rightly criticizes J.K. Rowling for not owning the fact that a lot of the social justice um, that she purports to do is kind of like a retcon on what she did in the actual text of the novel. And so, to me, Tolkien much more appropriately. Um, does a lot of work towards certain goals, but it doesn't come across that way within the text. So I think it's a it's a boon to the text to say, you know, that is Gandalf Jesus? No, no, that wasn't the type of writer he was. No, he, you're not going to get that one to one right. type well, of I thing mean, that you would get. Does in he a... occasionally symbolize that? Sure. Mm -hmm. So does Aragorn. Mm -hmm. um, but it's more like they they symbolize Christ like qualities. Right. And they are types of Christ, not stand-ins for Christ in the story. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, to, to go in line with the context of viewers that have seen their criticism of Harry Potter, I think that uh, it, it makes much more sense to me that you would criticize an author for poorly embedding some different, like, there's a lot of similarities to uh, the Death Eaters and the Nazis, but when... Uh, when Rowling, I was going to say Tolkien, when Rowling um, wanted to say, you know, this uh, Umbridge is this villain, a very Nazi-like villain, let's let the um, 
what are the horsey men? <laughs> it's a very intelligent argument. But Centaurs? There you go. Like, so Adrian said, you know, they're rape in much of in mythology. So let's let the Nazi Nazi get punched by right, this, this thing. Really but it's a very poor argument because it makes the it makes the heroes look awful that they would right. just let Umbridge get taken by these things because she's not she's not a very good um, criticism of Nazi propaganda. It's just kind of paying lip service to different symbology. Whereas I think Tolkien and and in in um, spirit of this whole episode, uh, this podcast episode, it, it's more of an argument for um, fantasy can reach to more literary qualities than people like Adrian and other critics sometimes give it credit for. Right. And so um, I think he, Tolkien had a lot of uh, very noble goals in trying to elevate the different fables and myths to the status that it used to be not just right. for any really basic right. goal and i mean you can kind of see how this is sort of a mishmash of of um of mythological story so like if you're reading something like beowulf or or the iliad or whatever mm -hmm. there's a lot of language in there that tolkien tries to emulate because that's what he's used to as as a mythological language mm. Um, same thing with the Old Testament. If you want to compare it to the Old Testament, that is what he considered, you know, this is how you build a world, mm. right? That's the history of the world as we know it and the history of humanity. We're going to put all of that into this story. Mm. So there's a lot more in here than you probably need in one novel. Mm. But if this is the only novel of his you're going to read, you're going to need to understand all of this stuff about his world for it to make any sense. Mm. Um, which then brings me to the second thing that he was doing. Um, as we read the essay on fairy stories, he described a lot of what it takes to build this secondary world that you're creating in a fantasy story, um, which involves, you know, taking things that are ordinary and giving them a new imaginative uh, grammar, right? So mm. we gave the example of the green sun. Our sun is not green, but you can imagine a green sun. And then by extrapolating that out to, well, what kind of a world would a green sun exist in? You know, mm. you start to build a whole different place, which is why he's creating the secondary world. But he wants to use that secondary world to examine stuff that we know in a new light. So you can look at things like the ring or like Sauron and say, yes, okay, that's standing in for uh, a weapon of mass destruction and some crazy evil dictator. Mm. But it, it means more than just Hitler and, I don't know, the atomic bomb. The atomic bomb. Yeah. Right? Although, I guess Hitler didn't have the atomic bomb, right? That was Russia. Mm. Whatever the thing is. Anyway, don't quote me on history because I'm terrible about that. But um, his point isn't to say, okay, this is how you treat somebody who has an atomic, you know, this specific dictator. Mm. It's dictators in general have this in common. Mm. Or when you get this much power, this is what it does to society. And you can look at it through a very different lens. Um, I was kind of sad that uh, the Bright movie mm. didn't try and take more advantage of the secondary world. Mm -hmm. um, they were trying to look at racism in a very different way by, instead of just talking about races that we know, 
um, giving them fantasy races, right? So there were orcs and there were elves and there were... But they made it very much too one-to-one, and it destroyed any chance of looking at that in this secondary world light, mm, which is point. what Tolkien's doing. Tolkien is taking, like, here's the humble everyman dude, which are the hobbits. Here's some crazy, powerful, ancient, wise something, mm. which is what Gandalf is. You're like, you don't even know what the guy is, but you know he's not uh-huh. human, right? Um, that stand for things that could be in the real world, but you're looking at them now in a very, very different way, and they mean something totally different in mm. this secondary world. Mm. But the basis for them is still the one-to-one, mm. right? Yeah. And, and it and, gives you a chance to examine that from a different perspective. And I, I would say that uh, having watched uh, uh, Adrian and Dalton go through the um they went through portrait of the artist as a young man and adrian very rightly was saying that this was a juncture with with the conflict uh, in ireland at the time where they were thinking it was a choice between redefining meaning or there is no meaning right and so what i think jared tolkien is adding to that argument is that there is meaning within some of our ancient symbols. And so I, I tend to look at that as a very literary, uh, a big literary merit of his work is that he's trying to imbue meaning into writing that you might not see in something like Harry Potter that is just directed towards children. Right. In Lord of the Rings, it's trying to deal with evil as powerful as the Nazis and... Um, but also evil in lesser beings, evil that tempts you, right? Like, it's very much all about temptation. Right. Anyway, like, it's not just about, you know, these symbols can have meaning or these symbols do have meaning. It's these symbols have represent something that everybody understands. Oh. That's this universal, in the back of every human's mind, understanding, right? Mm. Which is why, I guess, in fantasy, things get very extreme. Like, you look at the Dark Lord and you're like, well, you know he's a Dark Lord. It's not like he's ever going to look like anything else. Like, you know that guy's evil the second you see him. Mm-hmm. There's no question of, well, let's see, maybe he's good, maybe he's not. Maybe he could turn... No, no, mm-hmm. this guy is evilness. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a big argument that, that Adrian and Dalton have in... in They're kind of jealous for uh, kids that are... are only exposed to literature through something like the Hunger Games and and um, and Harry Potter, and it's something that we discussed in the in the earlier part of this episode. That I also had that perspective of this has just been commodified. Right. Uh, but at the same time, to write off fantasy in general, in general. just because there are um, there are not as much um, there's not as much of a gradient in terms of um, of ambiguity there is still something very mature about how Jared Tolkien is able to take fantasy stories and make them stories that adults can glean meaning from right. that not, not all writing not all good writing in my opinion has to do with the minutia of certain moral or political or personal decisions. Um, I think that there is still value in uh, literature that's able to take symbols and redefine them for a new generation. Right. 
which I think is where our disappointment came from when we read Song of Achilles. Because mm -hmm. we were hoping that's what they were going to do in Song of Achilles. And it's not. <laughs> Alright, so speaking of taking symbols and looking at them under a new light, I have several uh, that I would like to discuss in response to uh, some things that Adrian has brought up. Um, the big one, obviously, for Lord of the Rings is the ring itself. Mm -hmm. um, which stands for so many things. It can stand for an atomic bomb or something to that mm. level, right? Because it is literally, you could kill the world with that thing, mm. right? Or the Infinity Gauntlet now, right? That's everybody's yeah. standard. Uh -huh. It is the Infinity Gauntlet, basically. Uh -huh. um, but it also stands for temptation, mm. in my mind, right? right? Because pretty much everybody who comes into contact with this wants it. Mm. And it shows a lot of people's responses to to evil or wrongness or power, right? That's the main temptation of that is power. Um, and how different people handle it or don't handle it or ignore it or pass it on to the one who's the most, <laughs> the least likely to kill the world if he has it, um, which is why the hobbits get involved. Um, really briefly to touch on the, the thought of it being a Freudian sample, uh, I think, well, Personally, I think at this point, you can, if you look at anything too long, it becomes a Freudian mm. example. But uh, And I think if you look at anything that is being used as a symbol for temptation, right. that it is might probably be also a tie that attractive to automatically, just automatically make, make it sexual. a sexual thing. Yeah. Um, but I think it has other, I mean, I, not that I'm saying it couldn't also have that connotation, but it has mm. more than just that connotation. And um, to me, the use of a ring specifically for this object, for the many, there are many rings of power in the story, um, a ring to medievalists and earlier was a symbol of a king's power. You would have a signet that symbolized your, your authority mm. and used it to sign things and make things official and whatever. So the use of a ring in that sense, I think it's more of a political tool, mm. not necessarily sexual, although, I, like I said, I can also see that mm. as, as tying it into temptation mm. being the reason for that. Okay. I like to, although we don't really get to see too much of this because neither character really is in uh, the first book as much, but the, the difference between Sauron and Saruman as bad guys. Um, Sauron obviously being the bad guy, right? The big evil, the dark lord. There's so many different things that you could tie that to. Um, not just like, well, okay, the obvious one at the time was Hitler, but we have seen other figures since then that have been this big bad evil thing that want to take over the world. Um, and the corruption that he brings through that, as opposed to Saruman, which I think Tolkien gets a little more um, specific with, mm. right? Because Saruman had been good and got corrupted mm -hmm. and he had been all about nature and became mechanical mm. and he had been all about wisdom and became about power mm. so like the the difference between Sauron who was always bad and Saruman who became bad and you could see what Tolkien considered that transition mm. um, I think was a nice literary device uh, in general um, and then the last one I want to, to bring up is Aragorn as a cowboy which I had never even thought of really um, until he brought it up. <laughs> and I was like, a cowboy? What? Well, I'd be interested to see your your opinion on that because of the introduction by our mom is watching 
Game of Thrones. Or, oh. <laughs> her watching it for the first time. Yes. We were watching some of the things. And they brought up Rangers. And oh. so I wasn't sure how uh, in medieval times or even within any of English history, Rangers came up. Because right. it seems like Ranger slash Rogue slash this is the man on a horse that is not a knight. <laughs> well, see, that's the interesting thing you bring up. History. So, I was going to bring up knights. Uh-huh. Because in every language except English, well, not even in, in English as well, because we didn't really start calling them cowboys till they, but they not, got over not here. until a certain part of English. Right. Was American it? English, they became cowboys. Before that, and in other languages, they are still called the same word that they would have used for knight mm-hmm. in the medieval times. So, okay. in like Spanish, it's caballero, which is a knight or a cowboy or the chivalrous person mm. like it is still that same thing oh. so even though you call them cowboys now <laughs> the concept is still that chivalrous guy on a horse mm-hmm. that's going to come in and save the day right mm. and americans have our own twist on it mm. but it's still the same I- image so mm. aragorn is well they call them knight errants uh-huh. right because there's knights that are like the big powerful dude that works for the the guy that owns the castle. Uh-huh. And then there's knights, like, in the stories. So, Amadis of Gaul, or other, um, the big, big romance epics, mm. are all knights that are no longer connected to a specific person. Uh-huh. They're out there doing good because that's their job, right? Mm-hmm. They went around and, or Don Quixote is making fun of those, actually. It's uh-huh. The satire is, he's going to become this knight errant because he's read all of these stories about guys mm-hmm. that do that. So, Aragorn... Even though he has willfully put himself outside of the current political system, is still that guy. Oh, he is still that guy on a horse who knows all the rules of chivalry, who knows when it's time to do the right thing. So yes, a cowboy, but a cowboy because cowboy used to be other words. It's the same concept. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so he's right. He is a cowboy, but mm-hmm. it, it's it's all one big continuous thing. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, we, we, we do this because we love you. <laughs> it's true. Um, uh, in the sense that uh, as becoming a new member of BookTube, I think it's important to have these types of discussions. And so uh, if you want to come up here and have a cheesesteak. Oh, please. And talk we, we know about. know good places to get them. And, and talk about uh, Rocky and. and Bring, if Dalton comes to PAX Unplugged, because Dalton would enjoy that. I don't know if. Adrian would. But Dalton would come to Plax Unplugged. Let us know if you come and we will take you to get cheesesteaks <laughs> and play some D&D and it'll be fun. And, and run up the the Art Institute steps. Oh yeah, yeah. And do the Rocky thing. <laughs> totally come do the Rocky thing. We'll play the music and everything. It'll be great. Talk about the, the symbolic implications of raising your fists. <laughs> it, it has to be both. Because one means something very different than both. Right. This is triumph. This is stick it to the man. So <laughs> there you go. To be careful which way you do. Anyway. So um, yeah, thanks for for listening, both yes. for those of you on the podcast and those watching on our on Melissa's YouTube channel. Um, so we're going to be trying to do. Channel. I don't understand. Um, <laughs> we're we're taking our steps, Baby our first steps, steps uh, into BookTube and uh, doing music and all sorts of different adventures. Uh, but thanks for joining us on this one. Um, you can reach us at Unboxing Story on Twitter and Facebook. Um, and you can email us at unboxingstorypodcast at gmail.com if you have any further arguments about 
Lord of the Rings or <laughs> Harry Rings Potter. Harry oh, I was going to suggest other more literary fantasy stories. Oh, go if ahead. If you wanted to, if anyone would like to explore that. Um, and now I've forgotten what they are because I didn't write them down. <laughs> well, I'll say one coming out in September. Solomon, September. Solomon Rushdie is doing a adaptation of Don Quixote. Oh. Called Don Quixote. Chote? I don't It's a very odd. Spelling? Spelling of it. So probably his own. There is an X in the middle. No, I I think I think our dad should shove that enough into your face. Okay. (laughs) All right. So anything by Neil Gaiman, although I suggest either Stardust or uh, Anansi's Boys. Um, The slow no, yeah, the slow Slow regard of silent things by Patrick Rothfuss. That's his novella. That's kind of a spin-off from his main series. So if you want to do something shorter, that's a good one to pick. And The Last Unicorn by Peter Beagle, which is probably my first real foray into really awesome fantasy, which is what got me into things. Um, so yeah, try some of those and see if you think that they have managed to bring more of what you consider literary into the genre. Mm-hmm. And I think that as far as um, previous videos, having seen that uh, Adrian enjoyed reading um, Michael Crichton, I was thinking that there are some uh, sci-fi novels and short stories that I've read recently that are more um, literary than most. Um, Annihilation, we, we have an episode oh, yeah. all on that that is very much more focused on this woman's personal journey mm-hmm. and how there are different uh, things that sci-fi uses, that is used as a way of showing her personal journey of grief and of change in um, her uh, her life. And then uh, I also um, was reading The Stories of Your Life or Stories of Your I Life. I need to read that next. By Ted Chiang. Because that's who, the guy that they based a rival off of, right? Yeah, they yeah. based a rival off the short story, Story of Your Life. And uh, many of those short stories are good um, explorations of different ideas and, that, and that's basically um from from binge watching a lot of strip cover lit videos um adrian made the point that books are the best vehicle for ideas and i think sci-fi is much more about whittling down right different ideas, different ideas. out of a larger you know dramatic right. whereas narrative. fantasy kind of does the opposite it piles a whole bunch more into right. it so i think that the if if there's anything that would draw that in a more literary fashion it would be science fiction but i think melissa did a tremendous job in this round of the boxing match <laughs> that we've thrown ourselves into um and w- we'd look forward to a rebuttal um of, well, I mean, of, really well of, if you'd like it'd be cool even yeah. if you just say hi we, we want to get that, that piss and vinegar um out of, his words not mine oh okay um <laughs> And, and have some healthy healthy arguments. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you guys again later. Bye.